Well, good afternoon and a very warm welcome to our latest Generation podcast. And again, uh, with me today, I have a very special guest. My guest is Nancy Guthrie. Nancy is an author, a speaker, and just a general all-rounded Southern girl. Welcome, Nancy. Hey, I'm not really Southern. I know I live in Nashville, but I didn't grow up in the South. And don't be telling me that I have some kind of Southern accent because I, I don't like it when people say that. Yeah, but you're the quintessential Southern girl. What makes you say so? Well, you're so, I don't know. You're just into all the things that Southern girls are into, aren't you? Not that I know of, but if you think so, okay. Nancy, it's great to meet you again. We first met uh, a few years ago in a few, a few, when we were both young. When uh, this was in Nairn in Scotland, and you were yeah, doing that some. That had to be maybe two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven, maybe. Exactly before both of us were famous, and here we are <laughs> <laughs> talking to the world in a podcast. Well, I love. Scotland, and I'm hoping to get back there, so I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you today. Great to talk to you, Nancy. Okay, I am really interested in one or two things. Um, I hear that you have been really busy lately. Can you tell us what you've been doing? Well, I've had so much this fall launching a series of uh, biblical theology workshops for women. So I did seven of them this fall. I have 10 to do this spring, and as of 10 minutes ago, I filled up fall of 2020 with um, for another like seven or eight cities. So, um, yeah, that has been really fun. Now, see, you folks in Scotland, I feel like um, this sense of understanding the Bible as one story mm-hmm. and seeing Christ through all the scriptures that— for some, for many of you, for so many Scottish people, at least that I have met, that that was deeply ingrained in you. Yeah, from your growing up, right? So that's something that you have always had a, a hold on, and that's just not the case for us here in the states. Somewhere that got lost. I I, I have a theory. I don't know if it's true. Um, I think part of my theory is just our American pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember also reading a story in uh, Christianity Today maybe 10 years ago, and it talked about how the American Sunday School movement changed the American church in that then uh, people began to be taught and catechized by non-trained laity. Okay. And that's maybe where part of that left. Um, I think it does have to do with more of that pragmatism. Like, we we, we want to— you teach children the Bible and then tell them what they're supposed to do and how that's supposed to shape, you know, their um, their moral lives or or try to have faith like that person or don't disobey like that person, rather than seeing that the whole of the scriptures are centered on what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. So somehow we lost that, and oh. as I have learned more about that, including from a a number of Scottish preachers and teachers Mm -hmm. over the last 10 or 15 years, I've just been on a mission to introduce and infiltrate, especially women's Bible study in the local church with biblical theology. Can I just stop you one one minute? Okay. Okay. Here's a thing. 
that very Specific. often when you hear women teaching uh, other women, <laughs> uh, don't get mad women out, they just often just talk about, shall we say, things that are associated with girls or women. So whatever these things may be, I wouldn't dare mention them. But it seems to me that we just have a dearth of women teaching theology, teaching the Bible. So why do you think that is, Nancy? Why, why do you think that women can often expect other women just to talk about, I hate using a term, but women's issues? Well, I think there's a couple things there. First of all, I think that modern women's ministry tends to focus on felt needs. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so that the way, and I think out of a very good motive, it says we need to meet women where they are mm-hmm. and talk about the issues that are important to them. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say what I think women, and by the way, men also yeah. need, yeah. is to actually hear what God has to say and to let him set the agenda about what should be most important to us. And the truth is, sometimes my felt needs, I think they're the most urgent needs. Mm -hmm. They are actually not my most urgent needs. Mm -hmm. But the God who made me and the God who has revealed himself in the Bible, he knows what's most important to me. And so I feel I lead women into um, opening themselves up to what God has said in the Bible and let the Bible set the agenda Mm -hmm. Um, that what we discover is that there are answers to questions there that you and I just didn't even know enough to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I, I, I want to play a part in, um, supplying women with the kinds of studies and leading women and exemplifying to women that um, actually what we need is the whole of the Bible and that that in reality meets our deepest needs. Mm -hmm. So I guess that whole felt needs thing is part of it. And then, I don't know, I just... There's this other thing that thinks that women's ministry is supposed to be mostly about being a woman yeah. and 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 it's and seeking to be biblical in that sense. What does the Bible have to say about being a woman? Uh, but I think the Bible is mostly about what does it mean to be a person in need of and who has taken hold of Jesus Christ, and what is it going to mean to live that out? And so, I guess just for me personally, I I I don't want. I want the Bible to, once again, to set the agenda. And when I look at the Bible, certainly who we are as being made and female is in there and is significant, but it's just not the constant main thing. It's not the drumbeat that I'm trying to want to beat. The hero of the Bible is Jesus, isn't it? And, you know, he is there from Genesis to Revelation and one great redemptive historical flow. Is this something that is surprising to the American church, you know, that the hero of uh, David and Goliath's story isn't actually little David, but it's Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, why, why, I, why are folks moralistic? Well, I think it's that American pragmatism. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, and, and the sense of, you know, when we're teaching something that it really has to get to that, 
It does need to get to a so what. I, 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 I'm totally on board with that. But so often the so what is primarily about what I'm supposed to do instead of what Christ has done. Okay. And therefore, what am I supposed to do? And, you know, the, the therefore what I'm supposed to do is take hold of him, worship him, adore him, uh, feed on him. And, you know, most people would see those as not being practical enough for a lot of teaching, preaching situations. And I actually think that the most practical thing that I can call women to do when I'm teaching them is to call them to take hold of and to adore Jesus Christ. And when they do that, all of these other things flow out of life. Okay, so imagine that there's a woman in Scotland. I'm going to give you a real Scottish word here, trackled, okay? What? I don't know that word. (laughs) I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain to you. (laughs) Trackled means bothered, flustered, okay? So you've got a woman and she's she's trackled with um, three young kids under the age of five. She's barely holding it together. Her house looks like an explosion. And she gets an invitation to come to a biblical theology workshop. Okay. You 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 tell her. You tell this, you know, anonymous lady why she should go. What help would it be to her in her situation? Hmm. Because your greatest need and mine is to see and savor Jesus Christ as he really is. And at a biblical theology workshop, what we're going to do is we're going to see how the Bible shows us the necessity and the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus Christ from a number of different angles. And as we learn these themes that God has written into his book that help us to see Jesus Christ from all of these different angles, it warms our hearts with greater love for him because as a busy mom (laughs) with a house that looks like a bomb has gone off in it and kids who are pulling at you, um, the world around you is constantly telling you that what you need is a day off and what you need is a husband who's going to help more <laughs> and husbands that, and, and kids that will listen. But, you know, it's, we are in our world because of all the media we consume, um, we are discipled and shaped by the world so much of our week. And so much of our days, and we need the scriptures to be speaking into our lives and showing us over and over again who is worthy of being interested in, devoted to, obsessed with. Yeah. And studying the Bible's themes, I think, helps us to do this. It stirs up love for Christ, and the other thing I think it does, it fills us with longing for Christ to come again. And, you know, apart from that, David, we settle for so much in this world and we set our hopes on things that of this world that we think are going to, we, we set our hopes on lesser things and on temporary fixes and temporary 
minimalist joys. And so I feel like studying the story of the Bible, which by the way, always ends the same way, which is in the new heavens and the new earth, (laughs) no matter what theme we're tracing through the Bible, it ends up in these superior joys, superior security, superior satisfactions of the new creation. And you and I need to keep reorienting our perspective and our lives toward that. That keeps us headed in the right direction. Okay, let me give you another scenario. Um, As you know, the UK here in Scotland is an incredibly secular nation. So the scenario is that there's a couple of women, uh, this woman, she's made a a friend, um, she goes to gym with her, they go after gym for a cup of coffee, obviously they don't have a cake or a donut or anything like that because they've just gone out of the gym. So they start talking about Christianity and, you know, she discovers that her new friend doesn't have a Bible. So she goes to Amazon and she mails, uh, she's an Amazon Prime. So the next day, her friend gets through the post a nice shiny Bible. She's never seen a Bible in her entire life. She opens it up. And where do you begin? You begin at page one. And the first kind of book is quite interesting. It's a story of creation. There's a story of the flood. She's kind of has a vague memory of that. There's a really hilarious story of an old guy, uh, an old married couple, and, uh, you know, he's 100, she's 90, and she's expecting a baby. It's kind of funny. She goes through Genesis, and okay, it's, it's full of interesting stories. And then she, she hits Exodus. And, you know, Exodus 26, for example, is, is a description of the tabernacle. It's a description of, of a tent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she says to herself, my goodness, this this is boring. Um, mm-hmm. Nancy, help me. What, what did she say? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, that's that's a great place to land because let me tell you what that means. Yeah, you get there, you get to what? Yeah, Exodus twenty four through forty, and you've got first. God telling they're going to build him a tent. And then he gives them all these detailed instructions about what the tent is supposed to look like and what all the rooms are supposed to look like and what it's supposed to be built with. And then when that's finally over, then it starts again telling you they built it to all of those specifications. And it leaves you with that question like, who cares? Yeah. Why yeah. is there so much here in the Bible about this tent? So do you remember how I was talking about how the Bible answers questions we didn't know enough to ask? So. Yeah. Here's you and me with all of our felt needs. We're going to the Bible and we get stuck there in Exodus and we think, I don't really need to know this. I don't care about this. Let me tell you what this is telling you. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, we're getting this message over and over again. And here's the message. God wants to dwell with his people. Okay. And here's the thing. You know, I I find myself, David, I'll, I'll read these things in the Bible and I'll see God's repeated refrain from beginning to end of the Bible. He keeps saying, I will be their God and they will be my people and I'm going to dwell with them. And I read that and I realize about myself that maybe sometimes my desire to dwell with God is really lacking. You know, I'm, I might want to escape this sin-sick world, escape some things in this world, but my heart can grow so cold, and, and maybe I don't really have that fiery longing to say, oh, I want to dwell forever with God. And so then I open up Exodus 26, <laughs> and then maybe I, 
I go to uh, second or first Kings, uh, where then he's built the, the not just no. the tabernacle, but then the temple, and God comes down to dwell. And then maybe I go to John one fourteen, and John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And I get this growing sense, not just reading it, but a growing sense as I trace the story that God really does want to dwell with his people. And then ask, brings the question, am I his people? Mm-hmm. Can I anticipate that my forever life is going to be dwelling in his presence? So that's just one example of how when you read it, it may seem boring on the surface, okay. but when you figure out what it's really saying, it warms your heart right. and it gives you a sense of urgency um, to be joined to Jesus, knowing that we're going to dwell in the presence of God forever. So would you go as far as to say that there are no boring parts of the Bible? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. The first Chronicles, you know, is genealogy after genealogy. Oh. <clears throat> and I, I've not even started on Leviticus, yep. you know. Um, please tell me. Uh, are there any parts of the Bible boring? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, like you, like you decided you were going to read through the Bible and you started into Genesis and like you said, you're getting a good story, but then you get to Genesis chapter five and immediately it's a long list of names. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh, okay, I'm just going to skim through this. I'm going to skip over this because, I mean, like, why is this even in the Bible? And as you mentioned, you get to First Chronicles, once again, a long genealogy. And so you ask the question, why is this even in the Bible? And why do I even need to know it? And I would say to you, the answer is biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Because you see, if you understand that when you read in Genesis 3.15, that God announces to the serpent, he says, um, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And that then you realize, oh, so the rest of the Bible is about these two offspring and the the enmity or the conflict they're in. And there in Genesis 3.15, he said at the end of that, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And you begin to realize, oh, there's an offspring coming that's going to put an end to that evil serpent and all of the suffering and sorrow he's brought into the world. And it adds a tension to those long list of names because you're wondering what's going to happen to the offspring. And here's the other thing that I think that makes those list of names adds interest to them. At the very end of the Bible, we read in Revelation 21, Who is in this city, this new creation? It is all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, David, on that day, when we enter into that city garden uh, of the new creation and the books are opened and those names are being read, you and I are not going to be bored we're not going to want to skip through them, skim through them, because it. God knows his people such that he likes to make lists of names of those who belong to him. And you and I's greatest hope is that our name is written in this book and is on this list. And the day is come, going to come when it's going to be read. And we won't think it's boring then. And that's why it's not boring to us now. <laughs> now, do, do you 
need someone beside you to explain the Bible all the time. You know, I'm thinking, for example, of Acts chapter 8, when you've got, you know, the Ethiopian civil servant, he's gone on his chariot, he's reading Isaiah the prophet, he hasn't got a clue what's happening, and all of a sudden, Philip comes along and says, listen, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? There's nobody around to explain it. And of course, Philip says, hold on. You know, it just happens. I'm here. Let's talk about this together. Do you always need someone to understand the Bible, to, to read the Bible with you and explain it? Or how would you advise um, men or indeed women to kind of access the sort of biblical theology stuff that we've been talking about for the last few minutes? Mm. Well, in terms of do you, maybe I should answer it this way. You and I, are going to spend our whole lifetimes seeking to understand the Bible rightly. Yeah. Um, you know, when I met you back in whatever it was, 2005, 2006, 2006 mm-hmm. 2007, I had a level of understanding the Bible. And you know what? I understand it better now yeah. Yeah. than I did then. I don't, but I still, uh, you know, 10 years from now, if we talk again, let me tell you, I hope I understand it better than I do today in 2019 uh, the Bible is the one book that is worth spending a whole lifetime seeking to grasp, understand, more deeply apply and live out. So um, I I need less or maybe different kind of help with it today than I ne- needed 10 or 20 years ago. But all of us are surrounded um, – by people, by resources that can help us understand the Bible better. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office and I can see through Skype you have in your office, I see masses of bookshelves. Yeah. And I, if you saw mine, you would see I have the same thing. We, we live in a time we have access to so much help learning the Bible. So I would say to someone, avail yourself of it. Yeah. Read uh, some books I mean, and, we're, we're, and listen to some podcasts and preachers who handle the Bible well and grow in your understanding. Sure. I mean, we are so privileged. I was in Africa a few months ago and I was visiting a pastor there and he had three books. Un- unbelievable. Oh you know, I, I just felt this sense of, of privilege, uh, the, yep. the resources that, that we have. Uh, absolutely amazing to to have all, all these things. It really is wonderful. Um I mean, uh, I was talking recently to a friend of mine, and he was talking to an, an imam, a Muslim cleric in the city of Glasgow. And the imam said a really interesting thing. He said to my friend, the problem with your holy men is your holy men do not know their holy book. And that mm. was a kind of rebuke. He basically yeah. said, if you're serious about your faith, you know, you've really, <laughs> you know, it's a rebuke from a strange quarter. But the guy was yeah. right, wasn't he? That yeah. we really need to know our holy book. Not just reading it as a matter of, of rote, but, you know, plunging into it. It's a quarry. It's full of diamonds. It's full of treasure. It's a pearl of great price. And, you know, we should be wearing our Bibles out, shouldn't we? Yeah. You know, we say it's the most important book in our lives. Yeah. And yet there are such basic things about it we don't know. You know, at, at these workshops I've been doing, in the first session, we first of all talk about the sections of the Bible, <laughs> meaning the, um, the, the Pentateuch, 
history, yeah. wisdom yeah. books, prophets, yeah. gospels, uh, epistles, apocalyptic. So we talk about that. And then we I have got a big blank uh, timeline to walk through what is the basic storyline of the scripture. And, um, you know, there are some challenging things about the Bible in that regard because we like our history to be chronological. And the Bible is an ancient Near Eastern book that isn't necessarily presenting us a chronological story. So we've got some things to overcome to really get a handle on that story. Um, But I think like, You know, for example, because I didn't have a handle on that basic storyline for most of my life, it meant that there were certain parts of the Bible I just kind of lopped off Mm -hmm. because I didn't know how to make sense of them. And and I I think for most people are probably similar to me that 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 first bit to go is the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, because you know they're not chronological, they're not a story. they seem to jump back and forth between saying everything's terrible and judgment is coming to everything's hopeful and everything's going to be great and uh, and so if we don't if we don't know how to put them in the chronological story if we don't know who they're talking to and at what point in Israel's history they were talking to them those kind of basic things then what do we do maybe we dip into those books and find a bit that we like that seems to have something that we're going to grab hold of. And then we just forget the rest. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, so it, I, I it, like you're saying, it, here's this most important book, but just something as basic as knowing it's basic storyline. I find that I would say for most of my life, even though I grew up in Sunday school, in the church, studying Bible in college, working in Christian publishing for a lot of years, I would be embarrassed for you to know how recently I could have articulated the basic storyline of the Bible to you. Mm-hmm. And yet I think it it undergirds, it's the basic foundation for really grasping the Bible. Okay, here, here's something, just moving on a little bit. I mean, I work with a lot of communities, say, um, South Asian Muslims, the, the Roma community, and a lot of these folk are from very deeply entwined, close social networks, big families. Now, what I hear from these folks saying is that sometimes you people give the impression that going to church is just attending a seminar, you know, just discussing this book. So you you have these people who are part of a very tight warm community, often because they become followers of Jesus, they're disowned by their community. So are we just inviting them into a seminar? I mean, is is a church a bit more than that? Can we offer community? Well, here's the amazing thing about this book that our lives are built around. It's alive. Mm-hmm. The word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, meaning it cuts both ways through our lives, and it has the power to expose us. We're exposed before it, and we're held accountable to it. And yes, we are there to learn, but it's something deeper is happening when we gather with the body of Christ and a, a preacher gets up and opens up God's word and seeks to illumine it, presents this living word in a way, something actually 
supernatural happens Mm -hmm. that the word goes to work in the interior of our lives. It is a means of grace in our lives and does a work of creating a new life. Uh, the, the spirit, he had, he, he, the spirit, what brings about the fruit of the spirit in our lives? It is the spirit working through what? Through God's word. That's, that's the way the spirit works in our lives to generate the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Does it changes us. Does it touch the heart, Nancy? That's what I want to know. Does well, is, is the heart love, affected? Joy, peace, that's, that's the way the spirit does touch the heart. He works through his word. He works through his preached word. He works through his through memorized word. He works through studied word. He works through savored word, through uh, medit- the word meditated on, and it goes to the heart and it changes us in the interior of our lives. Does it bring us into community? Well, yes. I mean, um, yes, because God is a God, a relational God, a God who has called us not just to be individual Christians, but called us to be a part of the body of Christ. And it is his word working within us, changing us. That's also a community project. Uh, I think about first Peter, he talks about how, um, that the word is at work in us, that it's building a spiritual house that we are being fitted together as living stones. We're not just a bunch of individual pebbles out Mm. there. We are being fitted together as living stones, uh, being made into a temple in which God is pleased to dwell. Okay. Now, again, moving on just to some other stuff. I mean, I know that, you know, lots of folk have really difficult lives, and, you know, your story is well known. Um, You sadly lost two of your children, that must have been really devastating. Um, we, what would you say to someone, I, I know it's almost simplistic, but someone who's gone through real trauma, you know, real difficulty, um, unimaginable things, maybe things that are just so hurtful that we can't even speak about them, if you were counselling a mom who's lost children again, would, would you use the Bible in your counselling? What, what would you do in that situation, Nancy? Well, first of all, I would just seek to share her sorrow. Mm. I mean, that, that, that's the foundation, um, to simply be sad with her and to share with her the sense of awe, if that's the right word, over the immensity of her loss. I would even share with her that sense of shaking your head that you just wonder, what is God doing? Yeah. Because I don't want to rush in with an answer of what he's doing. I go into that situation solidly believing that he is at work and that if she is someone who is in Christ, she can be confident that this is one of the all things of which God promises to work together for the good um, of those who belong to him, but I'm not going to rush there because that would seem to dismiss, that would be making an object lesson or it might feel to her of her loss or traumatic experience. But here's the thing, David, I have no hope to offer to anyone 
apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, mm. which I read about and find in the Bible. You know, I I sometimes go speak at a university here in town, and it's it, it's a it's supposedly a Christian school, but you know, honestly, sometimes it seems in name only. And because when I go speak in this class, I, I go when the Old Testament survey class is getting to the book of Job and the professor invites me to come and I present the book of Job and talk about it in context of the losses in my life and what the book of Job has shown me about God's purposes and the way he uses suffering in the world. And I remember at the end of one of those classes, this girl came up to me and she said, she said, you know, I'm not a Christian and my Bible is the AA handbook. Yeah. What hope do you have to offer me? And I I know that you know many people would say you know we can that we can offer her some kind of practical help and hope, but honestly, David, all of that is just a stopgap measure. Yeah. I mean, I just looked at her. I just said the only hope I have to offer anyone comes in taking hold of Jesus Christ. And any kind of tips I give you for managing life. Uh, apart from that, they will ultimately fail you. But the only eternal, unfailing hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I've got to get there. And, you know, when I'm talking to a grieving person, the hope I have to offer is in the hope that Jesus, he's our only hope for life beyond this life. Now, these days, would you speak to someone differently than you would have 20 years ago? Uh, What I'm trying to say is, would would your emphasis maybe change from, instead of speaking out of your own experiences, you would maybe um, speak now of what the Bible has to say? Or I guess you always use these... Do I have to choose? No, uh, that's what I'm trying to say. I think you you probably always did, but have the proportions changed over the years? But be honest now. Well, I'm trying to understand (laughs) what's the question really underneath your question. The question I mean, is, I, yeah, yeah. Would, would you speak from your own experience or from the Bible? On what proportion would you use? What proportion? I would say, um, let's go back and mix this a little bit with your earlier question about women and what they want to hear and what women's ministry yeah. is. Yes. You know, so, so, you know, early on in my ministry, when I was certainly much closer to the loss of my children, I got invited because people wanted to hear a sad story. Okay. That's very honest of you carry on. Right. And I knew that. And there's a sense in which I wanted to deliver on what they wanted to hear. Even today, I feel a bit of that pressure. Um, so that meant for me, I, I didn't want to just be a Christian speaker with a sad story mm-hmm. that moved people. Um, so I had to see, here's the thing, David, my story might have the power to move people, maybe even inspire people, interest people. But there is only one story that has the power to make dead people alive. <laughs> yeah. And that's the story I'm interested in telling. Yeah. So what do I do when they've invited me to hear my sister? I That meant early on I had to figure out how do I use my story to tell God's story. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I am always looking to do. I, I recognize that my story in some ways, it provides some credibility that people are willing to listen to what I have to say. Uh, And so I want to use it that way to perhaps create an opening with people 
but I sure don't want to leave it there. I, 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 I don't want to just move them. I, I, I want to figure out how do I, how do I use my story to create an opening so that I can present the only story that has the power to make dead people alive. Okay. If, now let, let's be really candid here and I hope I'm not pushing too much here, but do you ever get tired of being asked to speak about your sad story? Or if someone goes up and says, Nancy, would you come along to our church to you know, talk about you know, certain events in, in your life? Would you tend maybe to say, okay, I can do that, but you know, there's other strings to my bow as well? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and honestly, David, that's just maybe a part in my life that's in currently in a state of shift. Mm-hmm. Um, this last June marked 20 years ago that we put hope in the grave. Yeah. Mm. And in many ways, I just want to be done talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's why I still do is that I see God uses it mm-hmm. and that I see myself as a steward. I'm a steward of what God has entrusted to me. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to choose and you didn't get to choose what God entrusted to you. Uh, but you know, we're like those, we're like those stewards in the parable of the talents in the Bible. And he, he entrusted differing resources, or in the Bible, it seems like it's amounts, but different resources. And the master in the parable Jesus told left, and he had one expectation as to what would happen. And that was that those servants would entrust what was, would invest what was entrusted to them for a return for his kingdom, not their own. Return for his and so he comes back, and what happens? There's that servant who has buried what's been entrusted to him. He's, he says, oh, "I was afraid I'd do the wrong thing, and so I did nothing." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you and I, our, our lives are spent being stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so, the goal of my life is to be a good steward mm-hmm. <laughs> with what God has entrusted to me. And part of what He's entrusted to me is this story of this experience of the lives and death of two children, the kind of experience that God might use to open people up to listen to what I have to say. And so I'm seeking to be a good steward of it. And, you know, honestly, this morning, I got a request for doing a biblical theology workshop, but here's what the email said. Yeah. We want you to come the night before and have a session while you tell your story. You okay. And I have to be honest with you, when I when I read it, I was like, oh, ugh. I don't really want to do that. Okay. But you know what? I said yes. Um, because, you know, while it might be a 20-year-old story to me, there are people that are going to be in that audience, and they are right now, today, in a place of incredible suffering, and they are wondering how to make sense of it. And they're wondering if they're if they'll ever have joy again in their lives. And they're wondering if they can expect that God will heal them and make them whole in the midst of this. And I'm gonna have the opportunity to say 
Yes, he will. And I'll have the opportunity to talk about specific scriptures that met me in places of pain that helped me to see things about Jesus Christ and about the way he wanted to provide for me in the midst of that. And they're going to walk away with a greater confidence in Christ. And so I'll say yes. Yeah. Now, uh, we had a, a counselor on a Generation podcast a few weeks ago, and she said a really interesting thing. I spoke about closure, you know, in in mourning and, you know, is there such a thing as closure? She made a, a really good point that closure is very often an artificial psychological construct. Uh, and she gave the example of a death of a child. There's never closure. Um but there surely is, is there a development in, in mourning? Would you ever use the word closure? I don't use that word, but here's what I would say to a grieving <laughs> person. Uh, because a lot of times someone will tell a grieving person, you're going to feel this way forever. And when the person says that, I think they mean to be communicating. You're always going to have a sense of this and, mm -hmm. and, and you're not going to forget that person. But let me tell you what, when a person newly in the midst of grief, who's feeling so much pain that they feel like it's about to crush them. And somebody says to them, you're going to feel this way forever. That's crushing. Yeah. That's scary. And so what I would say instead is there's going to be a place inside you forever that is tender. Mm -hmm. But you can expect that God, Jehovah Rapha, who is a healer, is going to do a healing work in you. And over the months and years to come, as you seek to know God through his word, he will work, his spirit will work through his word to do a work of healing in you. So that the days will come when grief doesn't have as much power in your life as it has right now. Right now, a wave of grief comes over you and you are powerless and it crushes you and you feel wiped out for a week. But the day's going to come when the grief doesn't quite have so much power over you and God will have done a healing work in your life so that the grief doesn't dominate you. So you didn't hear the word closure in there, but hopefully you heard progress. I mean, what we say, you know, Dave, my husband David and I do weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. Uh, in fact, we're going to be doing one in Ireland in May. So, okay. so someone, almost, almost there, almost there. Almost there, right? So May, so you can look that up if you want to find out information about that. But, you know, what we say to those couples at that retreat is we don't expect this weekend to have fixed you. Yeah. But we do hope we are propelling you toward an expectation that joy can return in your lives and that this loss doesn't have to dominate your life forever in the way it does now. Great. Nancy, you've written a few books. Have you got anything on the go just now? Have you written on this biblical theology thing? Are you thinking of it? any projects? Yeah. Well, this uh, the the biblical theology workshops for women, which I'm doing one of those in Ireland, uh -huh. by the way, in May. We also. would we would love to get you to Scotland, and you know, if there's any folk listening to the podcast, I am just yeah. waiting for an invitation. <laughs> I we, want to come to Scotland. I'll just tell you, I've already I've already marked out on my schedule. I want to spend May of 2021 in the UK. Okay. All right, doing these workshops. So I'm. Let's I'm just do waiting it. for the invitation. Okay. We right, will organize that. <laughs> Excellent. What was I talking about, though? I was talking about 
you, oh, you asked me about books. Yeah. Yes, books. So I, I wrote a book that came out a couple of years ago now called Even Better Than Eden, mm. how, your, how God's story changes everything about your story. Mm-hmm. And so, and in that book, I walk through, I take nine themes of the Bible and trace them from Genesis to Revelation. Okay. So the theme of garden and wilderness, the theme of the image of God, Sabbath, uh, clothing, uh, the city, the dwelling place of God, uh, offspring. And so I do that even better than Eden. So in many ways, what I'm doing at the workshops is training women how to do that on their own. Because I think that makes such a, a significant uh, difference in our deep understanding of the scriptures to be able to understand these themes that the divine author has written into his book. So that one came out a, a couple of years ago. My next book that we'll release is a book called Saints and Scoundrels in the Story of Jesus. Wow. And um, I look at 10 people or groups of people in, in the Gospels and Acts that by looking at their story, we see s- something about the necessity, but even more than that, the grace of Jesus Christ toward the worst of sinners. So that'll come out in April. I, I think it's really good as well. I mean, I know that you're what we call a complementarian. You have no desire to be, you know, a pastor. You have no desire to be ordained. Um, I, I'm just noticing that complementarians like uh, Rosaria Butterfield and, and yourself uh, and others, you're doing such great work in teaching other women and teaching the Bible. And it is so refreshing because so many th- people think a complementarian um, position silences a woman, but it does not. Would you agree? <laughs> well, let's see. We've just been talking for what an hour, and so <laughs> I think if we're going to say it silences me, I think I have proven the point that it hasn't. And you know, I once again, I'm a steward, yeah. and I'm just looking to be a good steward with what God's entrusted me. And one thing He has entrusted me with is a mind who wants to know His Word and a heart who wants to know Him. And um, I want to use. I just. Let's see, I'm 57, David. Now you know, I'm 57, okay, you know, yeah. I, and I want to use whatever days God has with me to use all these things he's entrusted to me. And one of them, you know, it's not only love for the scriptures, it's some ability to communicate them mm-hmm. in a way that seems to help people. I mean, when someone comes up to me and says, you know, you're a really clear teacher. I now understand that thing I didn't understand before. I just rejoice. I just rejoice. And I just think, you know, this is something that the Lord entrusted to me that I'm trying to be a good steward of. So that's what my life's about. Nancy, we're coming to the end now. Thank you so much. You have opened so many doors. You have, you know, opened up so many possibilities about uh, the Bible, about Jesus. You've opened, you know, your own heart. You've been candid with us, and we do so appreciate that. So we would love to uh, have you over here in Scotland sometime, and I hope that our listeners will um, certainly turn up when you come over and talk (laughs) about Jesus and the Bible. Nancy, thank you so much. Thank you, David. <laughs>